Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Lindsay Boylan who's running for Congress in New York's 10th Congressional District. Lindsay Boylan, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. To begin with, what inspired you to run for office in the first place? You know, I would say, you know, first of all, uh, I'm, a, I'm a mom. Um, I've been a lifelong public servant, and I've had the opportunity to, you know, really engage in some of the most important challenges, I would say, in the city uh, and the state that we have, uh, running from how to build a workforce of tomorrow to how to create a city that works for everyone, um, to how to grapple with the housing crisis that we have. But what I found at the end of the day is there's only so much you can do at the city and state level. And really, so many of the issues of our day require federal action, whether we're talking about housing, how to grapple with climate change in a very real way, um, how to reinforce uh, the civil rights and equal rights of women, um, and, and any number of issues we really need to push back and advance them at the federal level. And I was most inspired, you know, I've always felt that, um, I, I've always been passionate about politics and policy um, because what it can do and how transformative uh, it can be for people's lives, particularly, uh, you know, if you grow up like I did originally, not with, uh, you know, not, not from a wealthy family, um, you know, daughter of a single mother originally and a, and a father who was a Marine, um, who really invested all of their opportunity and all of their hopes and dreams in me and, and with the great, um, you know, the great policies, the rate, the great, um, public education, the great, any number of things I've been able to succeed, but I really see that disappearing for the next generation, whether we talk about, um, issues of mobility, we talk about climate change and we talk about, you know, what, what is happening in DC and how that's influencing um, America's role in the world. I really see our, our opportunities and our future um, disappearing, not becoming broader in this next generation. And what I was most inspired by in the midterms in 2018 was all these women, frankly, who got out and said, enough is enough. Um, no one can speak for the issues of my community and my own experience and the experience of so many other women and families like, like I can. Um, I'm speaking in, 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 as if these women, um, people like Lucy McBath, who uh, got out and decided to run uh, for office in Georgia after her son was killed in gun violence. And in my view, is in my estimation, is the best gun, gun advocate, gun control advocate that we have. Um, or people like Lauren Underwood, who um, decided to run after working in the Obama administration, having been a nurse and really being a, a, a very important advocate for mental health. I think the more people we have who come from different experiences, uh, having a seat at the table, uh, the better off we're going to be in terms of advocating for and passing the most important legislation of our day, the things that are really going to impact people's lives. You're in your 30s and are running for office for the first time, which makes it hard to ignore the contrast that creates between you and your Democratic primary opponent, Representative Jerry Nadler, who's 72 and has been in Congress since 1992. Do you think that Congress needs more fresh faces in there? Absolutely. You know, I wouldn't want to say that I don't value experience. I think we all do. 
Um, but at a moment in time where the challenges we have have gone unaddressed for so long, um, inequality, which I mentioned, for example, this by many accounts is probably the most unequal district in the country. Um, issues of housing are real uh, pretty much for everyone uh, in the district. It's probably the number one issue in every community board that touches my district. Uh, issues around climate change that we've left unaddressed for decades are impacting a district like ours, which has miles of coastline. And you think, well, well what, has, what has our leadership, what has our member of Congress been doing? Uh, it's, it's just not a, enough any longer. The status quo of simply co-sponsoring legislation um, that the majority of the party, uh, as led by mostly centrists, see fit um, to, to, to put forth, it's not enough. Uh, I think that that's why you see tremendous energy coming from, from both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and being supported by the next generation because there are so many problems that haven't been addressed uh, within how our system operates and how many are left behind. Um, and we don't trust that the leaders who've been there are going to start acting differently. I, I don't trust that um, as my representative in Congress that um, Congressman Nadler is going to all of a sudden uh, become more productive and more focused on the, the greatest challenges of our day. Uh, he's had almost 30 years to do that, and he's only passed three pieces of legislation, two of which are ceremonial. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that, you know, I'm thinking about the next generation and my daughter, who's five. Um, you know, we should be pushing back against this president who's doing the best he can to really ruin, in my view, the opportunity she has in front of her, both in rolling back. Um, environmental standards and uh, really destroying America's reputation abroad in growing our deficit, by the way, um, astronomically, um, and really taking away a lot of the rights that women have fought hard for decades in order to get. Um, you know, this president could talk about Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court appointments, and what that means for Roe v. Wade and so many other equal rights uh, pieces of legislation, but you can also talk about the 100, and, I think 54, it's certainly over 150 judges that that um, Trump has already appointed, and these are people who are going to be in office for decades. They're going to be influencing my daughter's life well into her adulthood, and uh, I don't have faith that Congressman Nadler is going to push back and 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 help build a future for myself or for my daughter. And, and that's because we haven't seen it happen and he hasn't been doing it. You talk about some of the issues where you differ from Representative Nadler and some of the things you want to do if elected to the district. But just before we touch on those issues like climate change, like minimum wage, like health care, as I mentioned, you're running against him in the Democratic primary for the seat. And one of the big criticisms that Representative Nadler has recently faced as the chair of the House Judiciary Committee is how long it took him to come around to support publicly impeachment. Yes. Do you think he took too long to come out and support impeachments? And what point would you have called for it if you've been sitting in his seat right now? Yes, uh, he did take too long. Uh, you know, I called for impeachment actually back in February um, at the at just after Michael Cohen's second um, congressional hearing, where he 
uh, you know, really walked through how the president during the course of his campaign uh, and thereafter um, had hush money paid uh, to Stormy Daniels. Now, I, I am not interested in getting into a conversation around Stormy Daniels. I make no judgment on any of that. But the fact that the, the president was actively trying to hide this uh, from the public is is against the law. It's against election law. Um, and and it and it betrays the public trust uh, in terms of a genuine fair electoral process that that the public is able to be aware of of, of what what their candidates are doing and 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 you know what's out there. Um, but you know I, I certainly by the time we got to the Mueller reports release, volume two is dedicated to you know a dozen or so um, instances of obstruction of justice and abuse of power on behalf of the president. Um, you know, we could talk about volume one and, and how unfortunate it is at the very least that the president and the GOP doesn't take seriously uh, Russian uh, influence and, um, you know, engagement in our elections. But at the very least, the way that he personally and very publicly in ways that we saw even on Twitter uh, attempted to obstruct justice and obstruct, uh, you know, the government, you know, parts of our government finding out inf the special prosecutors finding out information on on what happened uh, is is in and of itself an, a series of impeachable offenses. And the unfortunate piece is that what we've seen since 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 no one hold, held the president accountable in this way, forced the issue um, and, and the congressman, Congressman Adler, tried to slowly and, you know, please everyone and, in a sense, doing nothing by getting um, Mueller to come in and hopefully reveal something that he was unwilling to say himself as the chair of the judiciary. All of this is so problematic because if we had held the president accountable earlier, uh, I think we could have, there's a, there's a case to be made that maybe some of the bloodshed, some of the incredibly uh, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, damaging um, things that are happening, for example, in Syria as a result of this president's, um, you know, lack of trustworthiness, um, his, his total incomprehension of, 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 of even the power he wields or, or, or caring about that. I mean, we're, we're truly experiencing bloodshed our own troops are having betrayed to betray people they've fought alongside for for years now um, as a result of uh, this 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 um, flippant view and this flippant activity of a president who is more comfortable listening to um, foreign leaders who we can't trust than our own uh, agencies than our own politicians than our own public and our own military and and that is all connected to the fact that we have not in any way held this president accountable. And we're seeing the very real collateral damage in real time uh, as a result of that. And I absolutely hold Congressman Adler accountable. He's the chair of the judiciary. When he got that role, it was in part because he politicked to explain to other committee members um, that he had a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with impeachment processes. And the fact that he, instead of being accountable and clear on holding the president accountable, um, tried to go back and forth, talking about an inquiry without actually hold, holding a vote, all of these things made it easier and, and gave justification to the White House to evade constantly and consistently 
um, any efforts to hold hold him accountable. Um, and that's sort of what you continue to see in terms of the the White House uh, steamrolling and and unwillingness to have their senior fish officials respond to subpoenas. Um, and you know, as difficult as it is to say, I continue to see this very much as a problem with how the Democratic leadership um, is is dealing with this. How can we not have a lawyers enough lawyers to enforce the subpoenas? Uh, of people to come and testify before um, Congress. It's, 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 it's very, not all, I would say it's frustrating, but it's so much more because it's leading to so many um, d truly damaging things. There's much that's been said about whether Democrats should have done more sooner when it comes to impeaching Donald Trump for the actions that he's done in office, the many potentially impeachable offences that he's been accused of by not just Democrats, but bipartisan individuals, uh, independent individuals, individuals who have academic backgrounds, etc. Um, mm -hmm. However, one group has remained quite quiet when it's come to voicing public criticism of Donald Trump, and that's members of the Republican Party. Absolutely. Yeah. On the whole, they have refused to come out and condemn Donald Trump by name. Sometimes they'll criticize his administration's actions. We've seen that with Lindsey Graham saying recently that the situation in Syria is wrong and shouldn't be happening. But he didn't directly call Donald Trump out by name when he did that. Why do you think Republicans are so afraid to voice public criticism of Donald Trump in direct contravention of the oath they took when they became members of Congress, which was to serve the American people. Yeah, I mean, on one level, I'd like, you know, it's 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 baffling um, that, you know, people who I would consider to be patriots um, can't um, see past the politics to do what's right, which is truly what's happening here. Um, uh, you know, I think that uh, several of them, as as terrible as this moment is, are too busy keeping their job to do their job. They're afraid of the blowback from from um, conservative uh, members of, of of their of the public and their districts that this is going to hurt their reelection chances or the party. Um, but I think, like any uh, moment of gravity in history, um, one needs to rise above that. And uh, you mentioned the Syria conflict, and, and Lindsey Graham has spoken about this. I think Mitch McConnell took out an op-ed. But that's, that's just not enough. I mean, the, it's not even just not enough. It's they are directly responsible and culpable for, what, for where we are, particularly in Syria, because um, without the support of Mitch McConnell and without the support of Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump would be nowhere right now. I mean, he needs... As much as there's a sense of fear in going against the president, the reality is that he needs he needs both of those men at the very least in order to, um, you know, remain credible and and continue to um, go unchecked. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's fear, it's small mindedness and um, it's 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 such a manifestation of of the worst part of politics today in America that that these that these men would be much more concerned with keeping their seats and keeping their roles than they would be with doing the right thing in this country. And I think, you know, just as 
Just to add to that point, um, you know, much has been discussed about uh, when Bob Mueller came, um, you know, this this early, I must say it was September for, um, it was either late August, early September for, you know, for the judiciary hearing on, um, you know, responding to the Mueller report. And, um, you know, not only was I struck by how, um, you know, ineffectively the congressman, Congressman Nadler, dealt with that hearing, um, I was also, you know, incredibly, um, it was terrible to watch Republicans on that committee do absolutely everything they could to discredit the Mueller report, including discrediting or, excuse me, attempting to discredit a decorated uh, Purple Heart war veteran who, when you when you read the stories and you read the history about Bob Mueller, um, he has lived a life of service and he's he is truly unimpeachable. And I think it just is such a um, it's such a it, it symbol. It's such a symbol of this moment in time that um, we're even questioning people's integrity like that uh, because not we, but the but the GOP is willing to do really anything. Um, to just keep their seat and keep this president happy uh, so that he doesn't turn his attention in a negative way on them. And that's that's scary beyond belief. Um, and, you know, history will judge anyone in that position. History will judge everyone who has or has not played a role in this moment in time. Turning our attention to some of the work that you've already done when it comes to politics uh, on your Twitter account, you highlight your work on the Fight for 15 campaign in New York. For those that don't know what that campaign was, what Fight for 15 was, could you just give us some background about it and why it's such an important fight to have, not just in New York, but in other states across America? Sure, sure. Well, let me just take a step back and sort of explain my entree point into that 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 piece because a lot of people had a really big role in in that in New York State. So um, for the last four years, I um, played played a senior role working for the state of New York, uh, first as chief of staff of basically the economic development agency for the state. So thinking about job growth and the future of the economy across the whole state, not just in the city, but the whole state writ large. Um, and in my last year, I was deputy secretary for economic development, uh, as well as housing, which we'll talk hopefully about housing later. Um, but it was in this realm in which I got engaged when when the move under the governor got got moving for the 15 dollar minimum wage. So that's what the fight for 15 is. And, and this is really the convergence of fighting for a living wage. Um, and as you can imagine, some of the some of the groups that would be uh, perhaps most um or I would say least likely to initially support, um, you know, the $15 minimum wage were some in the business community. And so the role that I got to play and, and was really powerful um, for me uh, was to engage with and lead the effort to um, get validation and support from the chambers of commerce across the state. So how do you get people from, from different standpoints who are all concerned with the economy, who are concerned with jobs, who are concerned with quality of life, to be on board with this effort. And and so for me, that was a lot of fun because I wouldn't typically have gotten a chance to be directly engaged with a fight, a labor fight like this. And, um, you know, I'm so proud to have played, you know, a small part in this. And, um, you know, why does it matter in a broader sense? Just to take, to make it personal again, 
you know, when my mom had my sister at uh, 16, uh, she was working nonstop. She had two full-time jobs, you know, at any given moment, typically. And, and yet she wasn't making a living wage. So she was on food stamps uh, and or SNAP benefits, as, as people call them commonly now. Um, 12 to 15 percent of people in my district are on food stamps, one of the wealthiest districts in the country, one of the w most unequal. And um, the vast majority of people who are getting food stamp benefits are working. Um, and, the, and the vast majority of people who are, you know, were getting paid minimum wage, um, which, you know, with this increase to $15 basically doubles it or unable to live a quality of life. You can't make it work on salaries that haven't kept up um, with inflation and haven't kept up with, um, haven't kept, kept up with the times. And so when we talk about the fight for 15, which New York has been a leader on, and it was, it was a tremendous honor to play some role in that working for the state and the governor. Um, it's really about this broader conversation of inequality. It's connected to everything we're talking about when we talk about um, Medicare for all, when we talk about um, college tuition rates, when we talk about all these issues, we're, we're, we're being confronted with yet another gilded age where um, people's salaries, unless you're at the very top or people's income, excuse me, has not kept pace. Um, and, and increasingly it's very hard to make ends meet. In the city, as I mentioned, you experience that most pointedly with housing, but housing is really a proxy for not even making enough to, to, to live and having costs of housing and healthcare be so high. So, you know, it's been a it's been a really fun journey um, and so many great opportunities working for the state. Um, but really, we need a, a federal living wage. And I think that that's a big part of that. And and. Um, really progressive, the progressive agendas that you see coming out of most of the new candidates and some of the presidential candidates are, I think, where the country is going. And it's exciting to be in New York at this time because that is, these ideas are really what's gaining traction. And it's because no one is, no one is feeling good about how our economy operates today. No matter what your seat in this is, there's a sense of unease. There is a sense of unfairness. There's a sense of this is not working and it's not working for the vast, certainly for the vast majority of people. So, you know, I've been, it's been a great privilege of my career to be involved with, with things, things like the fight for 15, even in the sort of the lens of economic development. And I think it's frankly really important that people like who are in my position do that because this has to be a central part of growth. We can't just grow without understanding the reality of quality of life. And I think that's also what you're starting to see increasingly with some companies, um, I wouldn't say realizing, but um, responding to the fact that they really need to be much better corporate citizens and community partners than they have been in much more real ways. You mentioned there the work that you did on that campaign and the interactions that you had with people involved with the business community. Why do you believe companies are so unwilling to increase the wages of their workers or there are those companies that push back against increased wages increased protections in the workplace what's the motivation for those companies because does it not just create an economy where 
their workers have less disposable income, for example. So not just the pain the workers could suffer from not having enough income, but also the economic benefits that those companies will face if they increase the wages and those people have more money to spend. Sure. You know, there are any number of ways to answer that. You know, any of the arguments we have, I think, aren't, aren't, aren't enough because we cannot have people who's basic living wage basic wage isn't enough to live that that you know at some level it's really um a distortion of the system if you're working full time and you qualify for snap or food stamp benefits you are you are your company the company that you work for is being subsidized by the government you know so if you think about it that way it's incredibly unfair that that any system would operate that way. Um, you know, not least of all, it's very unfair to the people who are not being paid um, a living wage. Um, but some of the arguments we would get are things like, you know, if, if the baseline is fifteen dollars and that currently in our market is a is a decent is a very decent paying salary, we're going to have to or hourly hourly rate, we're going to have to bump up the entire pay scale now. You know, that that doesn't really get past this conversation of the fact that, um, you know, the minimum wage has not kept pace with um, inflation, has not kept pace with the economy, um, has not kept pace with salaries of the highest income levels, even as a, you know, as a, as a ratio, um, or, you know, as a as a, you know, a, as a comparison standpoint. Um, so I don't I don't I don't really buy that. Um you know, there there is a mentality, I think, and there has been for some time, and I think you're seeing it being questioned in a lot of places that I think is very important, um, that return to shareholders for companies, keeping costs down, um, particularly post the financial crisis, is amongst the most important things for companies to do. Um, but if you don't have a work base uh, that is – uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of benefit from having people who really believe in the work they're doing. It's very hard to believe in the work you're doing if you're not being paid um, a, 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 an acceptable basic and basic salary. It's 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 we need to rethink the whole structure by which we measure um, corporate returns. I think you're seeing some of that um, because people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are pressuring companies, uh, which I think is a very good thing. Um, but we need to see more of it. Um, and at the end of the day, people who are, you know, able to make their rent, who are able to get to work, who are able to have, you know, three square meals of the day, who are able to pay for childcare are going to be much better employees at the end of the day. Um, and when we aren't paying people enough, that cost is going to come through somewhere. It's just usually going to end up on government in, at some at some moment in the process. So it's really disingenuous when companies, um, you know, complain about minimum wage, knowing that in most cases people are still being, you know, supported through the social safety net at some other moment. Um, so those are the kinds of things we hear. Uh, but I think, you know, I think that that is waning. You know, I, I think maybe the, the increase, the scale of increase is, is a challenge for some, but um, there's really no response to the fact that we're not paying people enough to live and they're working full time. What kind of a, what kind of a world is that? It's just, 
um, completely unacceptable. So I think I think we're moving in the right direction on those things. I'm not hearing it nearly as much. Um, I think New York is a leader on that front. Uh, I hope that more states move forward with you know with a living wage. Um, and the fight for 15 has really, you know, played a, a significant role in that. And I think we need to, you know, increase and, 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 and have this fight at the federal level. You've called for healthcare, housing and education to be treated as basic human rights. The Coalition for the Homeless estimates that the shelter population in New York is currently about 60,000 people. They have said that that could hit 65,000 by 2022 because of the lack of shelters and permanent housing in New York. Why have politicians allowed the situation to get to that point? Because people might be shocked to hear that many people are homeless in New York City. It's shocking and, and, um, and it's unacceptable. And, and the, the statistic, I think it's probably from the Coalition for Homeless that I also add to that is uh, over 20,000 kids a night are sleeping in shelters. So the, the, these are kids who are sleeping in shelters, which, um, you know, not to diminish the bigger number, but, you know, ha- uh, children are the most needy in our society. And when we're not doing the basics of taking care of them, we are failing. Um, and, I think for whatever reason, it's, it's, we, it's easy for politicians to ignore things that, um, well, that they don't, that they don't have an active consumer. They don't have someone at their door saying, you got to change this. You got to do something about this. But I think we're saying that now. I mean, it's unacceptable that we have, you know, the, the quality even of the shelters is is not a place that people want to be. Many I, I've spoken with different homeless people that they have a, a, a bad enough experience in the shelter that they would rather be homeless on the streets, which says in and of itself enough about, you know, um, the quality of life um, that we're dealing with here. Um, but housing in and of itself to, to back up is a huge priority of mine. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, lucky enough to spend my last year of the administration overseeing um, the department of, uh, um, you know, the housing department for the state of New York. And what you realize very quickly, um, well, there's a lot that can be done that the state is doing um, to promote affordable housing, supportive housing and the like. Um, we really need a massive federal solution on this front. We need massive federal funding. And I'll just give you two examples, one of which relates directly to the problem of homelessness that you've read that you that you registered in New York City. Um, first, uh, if you're in New York, you really can't avoid the conversation or hearing about NYCHA, which is New York City's public housing. Um, you know, conservative estimates say around 400,000 people, but it's probably more like 600,000 people living in NYCHA, which would be one of the largest cities in and of itself. It was counted as city as a state. And the conditions of these NYCHA buildings, of which we have thousands of residents in my district alone, um, are deplorable. Uh, they've been disinvested in by the federal and local government for decades. You have mold. You have kids playing in areas that are rat infested. You have constant flooding because buildings aren't set up to hold um, washers. You have, um, you know, you just have you have a condition where last winter residents, something like I saw in one study, something like 90% of residents without went without heat or hot water for some portion of the winter. All of these realities are just unacceptable. And it's because 
Ultimately, the federal government walked away from its responsibility in funding the upkeep and maintenance of NYCHA. And that's just completely unacceptable. And I look around and I see my representative, Congressman Nadler, and I say, what have you done to change this? We've got families. We've got senior citizens. We've got kids living in these completely unacceptable conditions. And you have a bully pulpit and the power to have done something about this. And you haven't. Um, and I just find that uh, to be completely unacceptable. Um, so we really need to move on this federal investment of NYCHA, which now congressional leaders are calling for. But where have they been for the last, you know, at the very least decade when we've continuously needed these kinds of investments? Now, to get to, you know, a little bit more of a direct tie to the homelessness issue that you that you just referenced, um, Section 8 housing vouchers. Um, these are vouchers that, that we use to make it possible for people to afford to live in the city of New York, for example. And um, you could be a, you know, I could be a single mother and qualify for a Section 8 housing voucher and literally be in line for years waiting for it. So I could qualify based on my income and my family reality to get a voucher so I can find a way to afford to live in New York City. And I would just have to be waiting for years to actually get it because there are so few um, by comparison to the need. Now that has a direct, absolutely direct impact on our homeless population and shelters in the city of New York. Um, for me, that's why uh, when people ask me what's a first or top priority that you wanna grapple with once you get into Congress, there's nothing, housing is, is, is something that comes up in every conversation I have and it has to be right on top when I'm, when I'm advancing policy and getting things done in DC. And the homelessness issue is certainly a piece of that. Um, growing inequality is a huge component of that in our district. And, you know, frankly, I'm just really excited because uh, we have to move on this issue. You mentioned the issues with uh, vouchers there, but that's really only a plaster on the issue. It doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is that rent prices, the housing prices are increasingly on the rise in cities like New York. Uh, is there a way to control those and tackle that rising cost? Because surely if it keeps going up, eventually individuals like those that we talked about, who even if they're getting $15 minimum wage, they will just be priced out of the area. Sure. Well, you know, we the, the state um, did pass in this legislative cycle a series of rent regulations um, related to um, rent subsidies that that sort of gets at that issue that you're talking about. But the reality is, um, you know, we have some really expensive apartments that people aren't even living in in many cases. And then you have um, rent controlled apartments and then you have, you know, various housing programs. And, and it, it, this just adding more rent stabilized um, apartments isn't going to deal with the problem because it creates another pressure given the fact that we have a fairly strict land use coding. So, you know, being able to develop new stock, for instance, in my district is not exactly the easiest thing. But what we do need to do is create more building stock, even if it's in the surrounding area and the districts surrounding. Um, we need to incentivize that, particularly for, for low-income developments. Um, something that's pretty bipartisan in terms of its support is something is low-income housing tax credits. Um, and they're universally popular in terms of getting more, more development happening for low-income housing. Uh, I also believe 
like like Elizabeth Warren does, that we need um, really a, a housing plan for the 21st century. Um, you know, we we've had workforce housing um, played has played a very significant role in New York with Mitchell Lama for the last century. We 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 need to create um, a new generation of housing programs and housing development that 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 responds to the need. And, you know, that is in some cases going to, um, you know, require us to think differently about zoning policy um, more broadly, even though that's a city and state, you know, mandate much more so than, than federal government. But we need to think on this on all fronts. Um, housing has to be a priority because it's not just people living in public housing. It's not just supportive housing. It's, it's workforce housing. It's um, moderate to middle income housing. Um, everything is being squeezed. And I think we need to think both very creatively and broadly about the kinds of programs that will help turn the tide on that front. Uh, and, and all these issues are interconnected too. So if we have a transit system that, um, that works well and on time, it's easier to connect different parts of, of the city and the district much more effectively, um, making, you know, commuting to work more easy and the like. So, you know, it's, 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 none of these issues are simplistic or simply solved, but, but we do know this, we need massive investment in housing um, at the federal level. We need to think creative about the kinds of programs that are going to incentivize further development, particularly for low and moderate income um, and, and think about any number of ways to, to deal with this problem moving forward, because it's going to require um, a lot of energy around it and a lot of good thinking. And I, and, and very much in the same way, uh, healthcare motivated the midterms in 2018, uh, in the U S I think housing is going to be a big part of that moving into to this presidential cycle and across the country. You've pledged to stop the Republican party's war on women. Why do you think the Republican party is, leading what you've called a war on women and how is that manifesting itself in the day-to-day -day lives of the individuals that they're targeting you know unfortunately i think it's the same reason why um mem by the republican party leadership is supporting this president because it has some popularity with the most um vocal parts of their base um it's popular to um unfortunately, um, you know, try and control the rights of women. It's, 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 it, it has an audience and, um, it's not one I can understand or relate to, um, but it is there. And, um, it's really unfortunate because for instance, on the front of Roe v. Wade, um, women are still going to, um, you know, seek out and get abortions when they need them. It's going to be women who can't afford to do, you know, who, who can't afford to go that extra mile, 100 miles to a clinic, who can't afford other options that are going to be negatively impacted by this, um, by any changes, all of the sort of state-led, uh, particularly in the South, efforts to restrict women's rights. Um, and I think this, uh, on the converse, you know, I'd like to talk about why this is the moment to reinforce women's rights. Uh, I, uh, it's, it's an, it's an odd time because I can remember any number of conversations, uh, where I would be talking to people about Roe v. Wade. I would talk to, um, friends and people in politics. And sometimes you would hear something along to the effect of, of this, of course, before president Trump is elected, something to the effect, well, you know, you don't have to worry about Roe v. Wade. There's no way we're going to, um, you know, no way that women's rights are going to be rolled back in terms of reproductive choice. 
and and now look where we are. We have um, several different states, you know, uh, conservative-led movements trying to get cases up to the Supreme Court to um, diminish or uh, you know relitigate essentially women's right to choose, and that is a very real thing. And anything that threatens um, you know any woman's rights threatens mine, threatens my daughters. And I think so all of us are, have to be, and are unwilling to accept that. Um, and I think this is the right time of all times to, um, ratify an equal rights amendment. Um, you know, this is something that was advanced, uh, in the seventies and, um, gosh, I thought we would be much further along in terms of women's rights and women's place in society. But we are not, and we need to enshrine those rights, equal rights and rights of the trans community as well, uh, into our constitution. And this, this awakening that I think in part has come with the president's election and with, um, the Me Too movement, which, you know, are intimately connected in a lot of ways because we have, um, you know, a misogynist in the White House. Um, this is the time because so many across different fields, we all see what, what the reality is and has been for women. I think people are shocked. Um, some men are shocked when they realize you know, what women go through in the workforce, um, what can happen and what has, has happened historically. This is the right time to advance women's rights and to enshrine them into the constitution. And so, um, you know, we should be, we should be doing that. And by the way, Congressman Nadler's committee is the one that would advance a, a real full hearing on ERA. He's, he has yet to schedule that. That's within his purview, particularly with, um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, succeeding in his, in his role to the court. You know, we should, we should be advancing the, uh, an effort for ratification of ERA. And frankly, we should be advancing an investigation into Kavanaugh. Um, both of those things would be led by the congressman, Congressman Nadler. And uh, the reality, I have to say, is that women, women like myself, women across the board, would never let these things be um, – we would never let something like this be an oversight because – um, our rights can never be, you know, we, we have to think about our rights every day. And so in, in my view, it's yet another example of why we need women at the table because we will take it incredibly seriously, um, every aspect of women's rights. And, uh, that's unfortunately not where we are. And I think that has something to do with the fact that only what 25% of Congress currently is women and uh, a, a minuscule percentage of that are mothers. You highlighted the Equal Rights Amendment there, the ERA, and how you would push that if you were elected to Congress to get that enshrined in law. Do you think that's the solution then to protecting women's access to reproductive health services? Because we've seen that women's access to health services uh, shares a common bond with the fight for affordable health care. These elements have been regularly attacked or attempted to be undermined by members of the Republican Party. Do you think that would end the battle to protect these rights if the ERA was passed into law? Unfortunately, I, I, I never think that um, our fight is over. Uh, you know, I think um, there is a new generation um, that is coming forth. And I think some of the most retrograde, and I will say it retrograde, views of the Republican Party um, come from another generation, um, particularly men of another time. 
um, who want to put women in our place, and we're not going to go there. Um, but I'm not, unfortunately, naive to think that the fight is ever over. Um, I think it's a mistake to think that, and every generation has um, a role to play and a platform to speak from. And um, so I don't think the fight will ever be over, but I would rather have women and the trans community's rights enshrined in the Constitution and uh, and have that be um, the law, the, the law of the land in essence. Um, uh, you know, but no, I don't think the fight is ever over. Um, otherwise politicians would be out of a job. <laughs> you promised to take action on climate change now, if you're elected to Congress with climate change due to put over a third of properties in lower Manhattan at risk of storm surge by 2050, according to a study, how important is it for politicians to take action without delay on this issue and if politicians take action now is there hope to reverse the damage that a lack of action for decades has done yeah i am i mean if you look at the the issue of biodiversity is a great example of how you know we need to act uh, but so much loss has already happened you know you never want to start with the pessimism uh, we just can't wait. Um, you know, we have already, you know, the, the climate is warming. We, we are going to deal with the reality of, 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 of extreme weather events in greater regularity, um, as we have with, you know, Hurricane Sandy in New York, as we did with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, which uh, I led the state's recovery work um, uh, there. Um, you know, the reality is that our climate has shifted, but but we have a choice to make over what the continuing future looks like and what we bestow upon our children, including my own daughter. Um, and, and that's why I'm, I am so inspired by um, people like AOC on the front of, of her advocacy for a Green New Deal, which I'm fully supportive of. Um, I think what, what I would contribute most to that conversation and, and the framework for getting this done, one, we need to elect more people who take it seriously, uh, unlike Nancy Pelosi, who was you know, euphemistically calling it the Green Dream. Um, uh, we need to elect people who take it seriously. We need probably people from the generation and, and beyond who's going to be most affected by it to lead that fight. Um, and, and the thing that I think I can contribute most is that I, you know, oversaw the state's, um, office of storm recovery, which was, uh, dealing with even seven years later after hurricane Sandy, um, recovery investments and, uh, and the like, and, 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 and how do we grapple with, uh, what's required um, post extreme weather and um, having having overseen the work that we did in partnership with with Puerto Rico, uh, you realize not only are we not changing our patterns in terms of fossil fuel use uh, and, um, you know, emission of greenhouse gases that lead to climate climate warming and climate change, global warming. Um, the reality right now that we're already experiencing that we can't undo, we are totally ill-equipped to prepare and prepared for. Um, you know, what, what I saw with FEMA is, which is our emergency response, the federal government's emergency response, thousands fewer people than necessary. They're totally overstretched in terms of having to deal with the forest, you know, having to deal with any number of um, climate change related um, realities across the country at the same time. Um, they're understaffed, uh, under-resourced. And then when it comes to appropriating funds um, for these, uh, you know, for the damages, it's a, it's, it's a total 
um, free-for-all. Uh, the appropriations process has Puerto Rico battling with um, California forest fires and flooding in Texas and um, in, you know, inexcusably 9-11-related uh, um, victims funding. I mean, how is this a world in which an appropriations process exists? This is just completely backward, completely ill-equipped to deal with the reality of our future, which is we got to get we got to get it together. We got to figure out how to grapple with um, green infrastructure that responds to a changing climate. We have to um, cut out uh, fossil fuels. We have to, and then on the more basic level, we have to have a federal government that's prepared to handle the extreme weather we're going to already see and are already seeing. You know, the part of the reason why, one of the reasons why, um, you know, I helped lead this team that went down to, went and helped this, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico um, after Hurricane Maria is because New York had to basically invent for itself what a long-term recovery looked like after extreme weather of Hurricane Sandy. Um, and as I said, we were still dealing with the reality of payments um, and preparedness seven years later. Um, and and we can't, A, be reinventing the wheel on each of these occasions and having states and localities compete for each other um, in these extreme situations. That's, that's not how... Um, that's not how our government should function. That's not how our people should experience their government. Um, we need to do better. So, you know, that was a long answer, but <laughs> I hope I got to what you were asking. There's obviously opposition to pushing for action on climate change, or it would have just happened by now in Congress. That opposition seems to have turned climate change and tackling climate change into a partisan issue. Why has it got to that stage? Because if it's an issue that's going to affect people, regardless of their political persuasions, uh, regardless of whether they even have political persuasions, why have some politicians decided to make it such a partisan issue rather than saying this is something that affects everyone? Right. Well, I mean, there are a few different ways I could answer this. I think all of which would be true. Um, one of which is the Koch brothers. Um, they have funded, they have funneled billions of dollars into, you know, basically a shell game of making it look insignificant what's happening with climate change. Um, the, the main pollutants, uh, have, have, have run a publicity campaign of, how climate change is not real um, for decades, and and so it's it's no surprise that um, a, a topic that is alarming and a reality that's alarming it's it's it it falls on people's ears who um, you know are compelled by this idea that you don't have to worry you don't have to worry your life isn't going to change you're not going to personally be affected by this but of course we're all going to be affected by this so that's that's one way to approach the answer and I think Matt you know um, in this age of, um, you know, each person being able to find the answer that they want on the internet, that certainly contributes to it. Um, particularly when you have a campaign over, you know, years of disinformation led in part by people like the Koch brothers. Um, and you know, the reality of, of, of looking, um, the reality of climate change can be scary. But I think that's why, in part, it's so powerful that you had a teenage girl um, really help, you know, lead part of this latest movement. Greta has 
um, has captivated the world, um, certainly myself, because she's of the next generation saying, you can't, you can't, you can't trade my future for your present comfort. Um, and I think it's extremely helpful when I go talk to people in our community. Um, people from every generation are interested in climate change and people like her of this next generation have a huge, have a huge role in, in, in having built that interest because we all feel responsible to making her future and the next generation's future bright. I was watching the American president with um, Michael Douglas and Annette Benning um, this weekend, and she's a lobbyist who's trying to get um, the president, Michael Douglas, uh, to agree to really, um, you know, uh, aggressive fossil fuel cap standards. And, um, you know, it's pushed aside for most of the film in interest of other legislation. And it, it, it struck me how dated the movie was as much as I love that movie, because even of the way it talks about climate change, it sort of um, others it as if it's this sort of fringe conversation um, for a certain extent of the film. And I was thinking, gosh, I mean, it was a while ago, it was years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, the more that you can push aside an issue as if it's not right now, as if it's not, you know, 11.59 p.m. on the clock. Um, the easier it is to not get um, something done. And that's, I think, what unfortunately politicians have, have done with climate change because um, you can't always readily see the impact. But now we're seeing it with extreme weather events. Now we're seeing it with loss of biodiversity. Now we're seeing it with um, so many indicators across the globe. It cannot be ignored. Turning back to New York City, You've praised New York City for being an economic, cultural and engineering marvel, but you've also highlighted how the city must maintain its central role in advancing global innovation. What policies would you push for? What policies do you think New York needs to embrace um, to maintain this position as an economic, cultural and engineering marvel? You know, over the course of the last few decades, um, a lot of our research, a lot of our research and innovation has moved from investment in the public sector, sort of uh, research um, at institutions of higher education and the like, to the private sector. And I think we do need to go back to really investing significantly in public research, um, particularly for the kinds of things that, um, you know, lead to innovations that might not otherwise be done or sort of later stage um, you know, where, where, where corporations pick up. I do think we need to invest more in early stage research. Um, you know, it was, it wasn't lost on me, uh, that, um, or, or many others when, when China did a, the lunar landing just so they could, you know, go off and explore other parts of, 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 of space. Um, that's about resource gathering and the like. And, um, for so long, space innovation has been a big part of, of, of technological development and advancement. We need to continue and get back in that space of research um, so that we can do the important earlier stage research that um, later becomes innovation in the private sector. Um, I think uh, particularly where New York is concerned, two areas that um, are really important to growing the economy uh, are both the life sciences and technology. Um, you know, one of the painful things we learned, and I learned it um, because I graduated in college just before the financial crisis, is that we have to have a much more diversified economy. We cannot rely on the financial sector. 
um, even though the vast majority of our tax um, income for city and the state come from the financial sector, we've got to diversify. And it's just much healthier um, for the economy, for the people to do that. Um, so continuing to do um, to make investments that incentivize development in the life sciences and technology growing in New York City, which are which create good paying jobs, uh, particularly in the life sciences across different educational levels, really important. Um, and and some of the key ways to do that are incentivizing again, as I said, research, um, incentivizing small business development and innovation, and then and then some of the more basic things like infrastructure investment. Um, you know, we need to continue to do large-scale regional um, investments. There was supposed to be this tremendous infrastructure deal, maybe the one opportunity for bipartisan um, movement uh, in this administration. Of course, like everything else, is going nowhere. Um, but we need a new gateway tunnel. Uh, we need to continue to update uh, the transit system so that our system funct functions like it should. New York has always been and should always be the economic center for this country. It's, it is truly, um, the place where innovation can happen because we're all interacting with, with, with one another. We're all interacting in this tremendous city that has so much diversity. Um, but things like we even mentioned earlier in this interview, even like housing infrastructure, um, we need to do better on that to make sure that it still is going to be and returns to being greater than it is now a diverse city. Because if we do that, we will continue to be at the heart of innovation, um, you know, in, in, in the country. Um, so I would say, um, just to recap on that front, um, research investment, particularly in supporting of the life sciences and technology, um, I would also say, actually, now that we're bringing this up, um, supportive of educational programs and continuing education like community college education for free, um, because that sort of lifelong learning is how we're going to stay, uh, keep, keep people engaged in the workforce, um, particularly as technology changes over time and changes become more quick. Um, and then small business and infrastructure investment. So, you know, there, there are a whole host of things we can be doing. And it's just frustrating to watch all of that and see how much hasn't been done, um, particularly, you know, um, having been a resident here my whole adult life. Uh, I'm just really aching to get in, get into it and, and um, make some changes. And frankly, I'm excited about a lot of the young new people who are getting elected because it would be a lot of fun to change things and, and help change the future together. Back in August, you did an interview with Team Vogue. The article published had the title, Why Lindsay Boylan Wants to Defeat One of the Most Powerful Democrats in Congress. And in it, there's a, right at the top, it mentions how you received an email from a former acquaintance that you described as a major donor in local democratic circles who told you they were disappointed you decided to take on Representative Nadler and doubted okay. your ability to succeed against him in the campaign. To round off this interview, to finish off this interview, could you explain why you believe that they are wrong to doubt you in this campaign and why you believe it's so important to get in this race and want people to get behind you and elect you to Congress in 2020? Sure. So we'll just take a, a sort of personal approach to that first part of the answer. And, you know, when I received that email, um, I think maybe it would have been easy to um, feel dispirited by it, um, to feel um, demoralized. Um, but 
I think like so many, I've been underestimated my whole life. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've frequently come to the table alone, um, without anyone inviting me and saying that I'm going to be a part of something important and saying that I'm going to be a part of the conversation. So for someone who's spent so much of her life that way, and I have a feeling, you know, many of your listeners would probably feel the same way. It was easy to just say, wow, this guy is totally out of touch. This person is sitting at their expensive law firm um, sees themselves in the current congressman, feels threatened by someone who was trying to essentially challenge him. He, I, you know, I'm not sure even is really focused on Congressman Nadler. It's what it symbolizes for me to be challenging the system and, and, and can't deal with that and has to, uh, try and personalize and tear me down. Well, that's really sad for, for him, um, particularly when we win. And I'm, I'm sure we can do this because when I first and foremost, when I get out and talk to people in this district, they're excited for change. They're desperate for change. They want someone to come in and deal with the problems that that are actually, you know, being faced every day. They want someone to deal with housing. They want someone to talk about inequality. They want someone to talk about climate change. They want someone to talk about how can how can you actually influence education at a federal level? Well, you know, the universal pre-K program in New York City has been probably the most effective way to do that, um, you know, at the early phases. Um, they, they, people are, are, are so, if there's an optimism, it's about the opportunity for change. Um, and, you know, while I am new to running for office, I'm a mom, I've been in New York City my whole adult life. I love this city. It means the world to me. Um, I would rather be nowhere else in the world. And I've had a lot of experience, you know, working first in urban planning, uh, working in municipal finance, figure out how you fund infrastructure, and then working for state government. So um, I've had an incredible amount of depth of experience to bring to the table, but I'm completely focused on change. I'm completely focused on getting new voices at the table. Um, and that's even included in my campaign. My campaign manager is a woman and a mom. Um, the vast majority of our team members are women and, 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 and moms. And, uh, I think it's just so important for the voices in the conversation to change. And the voters, by the way, in this district are predominantly women. Um, and I think that they will be excited to elect a very qualified woman who's focused on the issues that they face every day, um, and, and elect the first woman in 50 years. Um, and not just women. I think people want to see change and, um, and we will be that. And we are going to work as hard as it takes. We're working hard every day, um, to, to explain why we're in this, what we're about, um, the true principles that are driving us. Um, and we're going to keep working until the primary and, and until we get, we get, you know, we get this election. Lindsay Boylan, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It was fun. Appreciate it. That was Lindsay Boylan, who's running for Congress in New York's 10th Congressional District. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Lindsay Boylan or at lindsayboylan.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.